Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room. Sarah, why don't you tell us all about it? Yes, we do have a lovely chat room. If you haven't visited us there yet, I would urge you to do so. The conversation is always very stimulating, and I always learn something every single time. So um, it's a good place to hang out. So come join me at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, in the spotlight this week, we turn our attention to slippery slopes. Everyone has heard the slippery slope response to many an argument. I have on several occasions in my books and articles addressed implications and ramifications to contemporary issues that are fraught with slopes of all kinds. Today, I wish to bring your attention to the nature of marriage. I do agree that the only justification for the old definition of marriage, that of between one man and one woman, is almost entirely based on religious principles. As such, it was and is discriminatory and therefore wrong. However, I also recognized early that by changing this definition and becoming more inclusive, we were about to slide another slippery slope. For example, it was easy to predict a more permissive allowance for polygamy, and that is indeed the case today. Some prosecutors already acknowledge that provided a man only legally marries one wife, he can have as many wives as he wants. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1879 ruled that polygamy is an offense against society, holding that it is not protected by religious freedom, just as human sacrifice is not protected. 132 years later, a lawsuit brought by an openly polygamous family, stars of TLC's reality show, Sisters' Wives, asked whether their personal behavior should be exempt from prosecution under Utah's anti-bigamy law. Just as individuals are not prosecuted for having multiple lovers or sex partners, Marriage in the past has been linked to religion time and time again. So in my mind, it's a reasonable question to ask. Is it discriminatory to prosecute anyone who voluntarily chooses to enter into a relationship they wish to call marriage? I mean, consider this while you're weighing matters. When two people choose to be married in a special ceremony they typically obtain a minister to recite and obtain consent vows. In some cases, perhaps a justice of the peace, but never just a friend. Now, why is that? I mean, why not just ask your friendly plumber to marry you? Well, that is the question, and the answer is, why not? A headline in Religion News Services this past week says it all. Quote, 
Humanists win right to solemnize their own weddings in Indiana. Quoting the article, In a unanimous ruling, the Chicago-based 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said denying humanists the right to be married by celebrants who share their lack of belief in a deity is a denial of their First Amendment rights to freedom of religion. Okay, so the next time you think about solemnizing your wedding, perhaps you might find some atheist to perform the ceremony. Well, maybe the plumber or, you know, the guy that mows your lawn. I don't know. What do you think, Rev? Shall we follow suit when we take our vows again on our 25th anniversary? You know, I'm not an atheist. Um, I'm not necessarily following any particular religion, so there isn't anyone. But I would like someone who takes the whole thing. I think of marriage as being more than just a, a practicality for society and taxes and stuff like that. Um, so no, I think I want a little bit more than that, honey. Pretty please. Uh, yeah, I totally <laughs> concur. I, you know, uh, but we can see uh, this whole concept of what you just described as marriage. What I think of as marriage, you know, going beyond the the contractual nature and legality of thing. Well, I'm not so sure that that uh, that solemn I uh, solemn is anyway. Yeah, I'm not so sure that it's such a solemn. Um, I think there's two categories. I think people get confused. You know, I think that's where where the issues have all gone muddled up. There's supposed to be separation of church and state. So why does the state have any right to say uh, who can be, or you can only have this kind of marriage or that kind of marriage? It's a different term, taxes. And filing joint taxes and the benefits that come from being part of an adopted family, which is what a marriage is in the legal sense of the word, is very different to what a church may say a marriage is. And I just think everyone wants to use the same word, and that's why there is so much strife and so much you know, turmoil about it all. Amen. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of recognizing the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, we hosted Elaine Clayton, and she presented Stream Drawing as a tool to access our inner wisdom. Martha wrote, I really enjoyed your show with Elaine Clayton. She seems so honest and sincere, and she makes the idea of getting to know yourself better sound like so much fun. Well, I agree with that. Brian shared this in the after chat. Elaine, you sounded much more comfortable this time compared to your first visit to P.E., I would have to check the archives, but I think your voice sounded more relaxed and full, too. Fun conversation. Jim wrote, I ordered the book, and I look forward to adding the drawing to my self-discovery tools. Thank you for such great information. Evelyn wrote, just ordered her book. Kimberly commented, I absolutely love your spotlight features. And the one this week about the on-off switch in the brain really got me to thinking. If light might be used to trigger a shutdown. Could they do that with the TV? You remember last week's uh, I spotlight? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And, of course, the fact is, why not? I mean, I, I would imagine so, Kimberly, the potential is definitely there. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. You could be watching TV and something can just start flashing at you. And then... Claustrum shuts down and there you are. Okay. Indy wrote, Ravinder and Eldon, I just want you to know that you are making a difference in the world. Thank you. 
I love your radio shows, your YouTube channel, your books and CDs. Please never stop doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Wendy. April Road, I have over 50 of your programs, and I can say they have definitely improved my life over the last 20 years that I have been listening to them. My collection is definitely my pride and joy. Thank you for pointing me in the right direction. Anna wrote, Wow, Eldon, you are living, walking proof that God can adjust our brains as he inserts knowledge. Your insights allow us to expand, refresh, create, and grow. Look at the books, tapes, and ideas you have created. God must love you. Well, thank you, Anna. I'm honored by your words, and I know that you know God loves us all, but I'm not sure about that. I'm living, walking proof that, well, I don't know. Anyhow, (laughs) Peggy wrote, I went to a weight loss clinic and diet centers, lost no weight. While listening to the Intertalk weight loss recordings, I went from 165 pounds to 140 pounds. That's a total of 25 pounds lost. Well, that's a great job, Peggy, and thanks for sharing. Abigail wrote, Thank you very much, Dr. Eldon Taylor, for your wonderful and excellent CDs. I have manifested some of my desires after listening to three of your Intertalk CDs in exactly 30 days. I highly recommend these CDs. I listen to Intertalk Ending Self-Destructive Patterns, Prosperity in Abundance, and Ultra Prosperity. Well, congratulations, Abigail. You do deserve. And Valerie wrote, In April of 2014, I emailed Eldon requesting help for feeling stuck on my dream of being an entrepreneur. I lost a lot of money as a real estate investor during the crash. I no longer had clarity in my life. Since then, I have had the same recurring dream that I interpreted as loss of hope and failure. One month of listening to personal best prosperity power, as Eldon had suggested, my dream changed. This past June, a business concept came to me like a light bulb went on. I will be in business to a multi-million dollar idea by spring of 2015. The CDs allowed me to see what has been inside me the whole time. Thank you, Eldon and Ravinder. You know, I, I never tire of hearing success stories from our customers. Rav, how about you? No, I really like that. It's the best part of our job, you know, to to see that all the hard work that we do actually does make a difference out there. That makes it all worthwhile. That's cool. You know, I'm going to take some photographs of you in your office in a supine position, snoring, you know, on the cat. Buried under my desk. You can't see me because of the mounds of work and the projects that come in faster than I can get them out. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show. Suspicions, conspiracies, and the truth. In my book, Mind Programming, and for that matter, in my newest, We the Sheeple, a good deal of research was invested in in evaluating so-called conspiracy theories. Over and over again, I discovered that those tinfoil hat wearers were in fact truth bearers, marginalized by hidden powers who did not wish the facts to come to the surface. Indeed, the business of disinformation is critical to hiding the truth in many instances, and that old notion of a good belly laugh is better than a thousand syllogisms is always a part of their strategy. As such, simply labeling someone or something as a tinfoil hatter is often sufficient to dispel any serious inquiry regarding the matter at hand. 
laugh away the subject as ridiculous and coming from lame minds, and there are a few people who will choose to follow any of it up. Enter today's guest, Nick Redfern. Works full-time as an author, lecturer, and journalist. He writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, alien encounters, and government conspiracies. His books include Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, For Nobody's Eyes Only, Monster Files, The World's Weirdest Places, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, Keep Out, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, and more. He writes regularly for Cryptomundo.com, the Mutual UFO Network Journal, and Mysterious Universe. He has appeared on numerous television shows, including Fox News, History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, and UFO Hunters, VH1's Legend Hunters, National Geographic's Channels, The Truth About UFOs and Paranatural, BBC's Out of This World, MSNBC's Countdown, the Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive, and more. Nick has been with us before, so let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Nick Redfern. Hey, Elgin. How's it going? It's going real well, sir. I've been looking Good. forward to this conversation. In fact, I told uh, Ravinder, you know, we need to just put this guy on the schedule, bring him on the show every, you know, couple of months, because you're so prolific, and you're always cutting edge, you, you know, right on the edge of, 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 of information, I think, that we all want to know, and I definitely want to know. But let's start this way, Nick, if we can. Tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. What prompted you in the direction your life has taken, investigating everything from monster claims to mysterious murders and clandestine operations? Um, well, it, it sort of all goes back. Well, you mentioned, I should just say first, in my bio that I investigate everything from UFOs, Bigfoot, and the Loch Ness Monster and things like that. It was actually the Loch Ness Monster that got me interested in the, all these different phenomena and sort of set me on the pathway to writing as well. What happened when I was about six or seven years old, my parents took me on a week's holiday to Scotland and we spent a day at Loch Ness. And of course, if you're going to go to Loch Ness, you know, you're going to look for the monster. And my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster and he got me fascinated in the subject. And, of course, just being a little kid at that time, you kind of, I guess, associate it with tales of monsters under the bed or in the closet. You know, you don't think of it as a scientific thing. Mm. So it was more of an, an adventurous story for me. But then as I became a teenager, I started getting into the books of people like John Keel, uh, Brad Steiger, a lot of the authors who were around in, you know, very popular in the 1970s particularly, and began reading books on the subject and subscribing to magazines. And then when I finished school, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and actually just stumbled on a job that was working on a, a magazine where I was living at the time in England. It was a magazine called Zero. And it was um, a, a magazine for teenagers, which covered like music, fashion, concerts, gossip, celebrity stuff, that kind of thing. And um, I did that for about 18 months. And I, I really enjoyed it, sort of getting into the world of journalism because it didn't just seem like a, a regular job. Uh, it was sort of very different. I was being paid to go and see bands play and then write an right. article about it, you know, which was much better than working in a factory pushing a button or whatever. <laughs> and um, so that's what got me into the field of writing. And then over time... 
I thought, well, why not try and combine the background in regular journalism with my interest I developed in paranormal things and apply the two together. So that's what I've done since then. So I, I kind of sort of write in a in an investigative journalistic style and and use you know names, facts, official documents, and tell the story of what I'm writing about in the same way that I would if I was writing an article for a, a newspaper, like on a local murder or a car accident. You know, you apply the same techniques, even right. if the subject matter is completely different. You write very well. I enjoy your books. I mean, oh, it isn't just the stories. The stories themselves are intriguing, but but I but I love how you you approach it. So let me ask you this: You've written a great deal about UFOs and aliens, Nick. Have you personally ever encountered one? I, I actually haven't. No, but um, again, one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by this subject is my father um, was in the British Royal Air Force. He worked on radar. And uh, he was a radar mechanic. And his job with the military was um, sort of calibrating and checking the radar systems just to make sure they were working properly. And one particular day, uh, this was in the 1950s, he was brought into um, one particular department and asked to review the radar system. And it turned out the reason why was because the previous night, the radar operators have been tracking strange objects flying high and at high speed um, over the North Sea and the English Channel. And nobody could figure out what these things were. The first thought was, well, it's got to be the, the Russians launching a sneak attack or something like this. Bear in mind, this is the height of the Cold War. And so aircraft were scrambled from a, a nearby Air Force base to where my dad was stationed, which is a place called our, our Royal Air Force Nita's Head. And um, the pilots reported seeing these strange balls of light in the sky, and which essentially ran rings around the pilots. They sort of played a, a game of cat and mouse with them almost. This went on for three nights, and my dad was asked to check out the equipment just to make sure there were no faults, and there weren't any faults. So it was clear that the objects were genuine objects in the sky, genuine UFOs. As I said, this went on for three nights, and at the end of it, Everybody, including my dad, was brought into a room, sat down, and reminded of the fact that they'd signed the British government's Official Secrets Act, which is a piece of legislation that covers government employees, and told not to talk about this incident. And um, my dad didn't talk about it for years. And uh, But that's another reason why I got interested. When you have a personal family member who's had an experience, but also whether where they're an employee of the British military working on radar then you begin to appreciate the reality of the subject, but also the credibility of the witnesses as well. Amen, amen, amen. All right, we're going to be speaking about two of your books today, Nick. So our audience knows sometimes the material we will cover may go back and forth between these two books. They kind of weave together. And when I was preparing for today's show, it was hard for me to separate one from another because they're, they're, you know one story can jump over to the other. But the two books, for everybody out there, for nobody's eyes only, and Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. There's two really great books, but we'll be talking about both of these books as we go on. But uh, let's begin by talking on the subject of conspiracy theories. You uh, you heard the setup piece. It seems to me that one strategy employed for purposes of disinformation is the tinfoil hat argument. Another favorite is the good old belly laugh argument. Have you found this to be true? And if so, please share an example or two with us. 
Well, yeah, I have. I mean, when you look at the UFO subject, for example, we have a lot of credible, good information. And one of the way, things I often uh, tell people is look at the documents that have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act, which tell very credible stories of encounters where pilots have chased UFOs, uh, police officers have seen them, and clear evidence of, of government interest and evaluation of reports. So that's what I always say to people when they talk about the tinfoil hat aspect. I always say, well, the reason why I investigate this and why I think it's so credible is because look at these 500 or 2,000 pages of documents showing how seriously military agencies have taken the subject over the years and all these documents have surfaced officially and legally through the Freedom of Information Act. That often changes people's minds. That's a tactic I often use to demonstrate the reality of the phenomenon by showing them documents. And that often then shuts up the sceptics and the debunkers because you're presenting them with, with official government papers. So that's the one tactic I use. Now, when it comes to disinformation, there's, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind there's a genuine UFO phenomenon, and much of that, as I said, stems from my father's experience. Um, but what I would say is that over the years, the subject has become clouded by people, like shadowy sources who never really show themselves, but who insert stories into the UFO field, which I think are just designed to make the whole subject look ridiculous. But there's a spin-off to this where when so much disinformation gets put out there, people then become confused as to which material is the valid material and which isn't. And that, I think, is being done deliberately. In other words, it's, it's sort of swamp us with so much material that the good stuff gets lost in this massive chatter of, of fake material. And we end up sort of chasing our own tails while the, the real information we're after kind of falls under the radar, so to speak. Right. So I, I, I'm always sort of very careful how I accept stories particularly when they come from, say, like an 80-year-old whistleblower or something like that. You have to evaluate the material very, very carefully that they're relating to, that they're telling you over the phone or whatever, or in a letter, because you don't want to be put in a position of somebody deceiving you, then you publish a story, and then it all comes back to hit you, and then people say, well, if he fell for that story, how many more stories has he fallen for? So you have to be very careful um, to weed out the disinformation from the good stuff. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, uh, history would tell us that whenever we find that story that turns out to be wrong, uh, uh, credibility of the entire field is, is damaged as a result because that story will also get picked up and get played everywhere. So given that, who do you think is behind this and why? Well, I, I actually have a very different approach to a lot of people in the field of conspiracy research and UFO research in the sense that when people say to me, why is the US government hiding this? Why is the CIA hiding that? Why is the Air Force sitting on whatever? I, I truthfully don't think they are. I don't think that when it comes to things like UFOs, that the Air Force, the CIA, the FBI, the government, I don't believe they're the bad guys at all. I don't actually think today's Air Force and CIA actually don't know that much more than we do. And that might sound strange, but I'll explain what I mean by this. 
Uh, what I think is that today, at least, and probably for the last few decades, the entire really sort of deep UFO program has Nick been overseen what we might, by what we might call a shadow government or a shadow okay. agency. Nick, I'm going to have to ask you, Nick, I'm gonna have to ask you to hold it on that shadow government. We've got a okay. hard break here. I don't want the computers to kick us out. We'll be right back. When we come back, please pick it up from the shadow government, all right? Okay. We're speaking with Nick Redfern about his research in books, in particularly his book Close Encounters and his book For Nobody's Eyes. You can learn more about him by visiting Nick Redfern Fortean, blogspot.com. That's Fortean, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, dot blogspot.com. Remember to join Ravinder team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Praise for Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com, or bto.net and or bbs.com. We want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Nick Redfern about his research in books, Close Encounters, and For Nobody's Eyes. We ask our guests for up to three songs, their favorites, if you will. There can be quite a bit of self-disclosure found in the music we all choose. The fact is, in a sense, the music uh, that's important to us reveals information about ourselves. So now, 
We just played Psychotherapy by the Ramones. Why is this song important to you, Nick, and how does it tell us about who you are? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, well, I grew up in the whole punk era of music, and that's what I still like today. And I, I sort of, I like energetic, fast, loud music. That's uh, that's what I like to listen. It actually helps me relax. <laughs> Not that I need to relax, but I mean, I find it relaxing, which kind of is a bit of a paradox to some people, where they it sort of gives them a headache or a panic attack or, <laughs> or whatever. But um, now, for me, I've, I've always love music and um as i said when i finished school that was a, a the prime thing i did in journalism first was um the music industry and i still do a lot of that today a lot of people don't realize that uh, probably i would say 20 or 30 percent of my working day is done on regular journalism much related to the to the music industry and so i've uh, i've always retained that that uh, that love for music that's cool. How about the lyrics, psychotherapy? Oh well, again, it's um, you know, it's it's a it's a song born out of I, like sort of teenage rebellion, you know, and uh, and I think that's an important thing is that it, it's um, everybody should be. It, it's basically you know everybody should be their own person, um, and if you're a bit different from the crowd, well, well, so what? You know, that doesn't really matter. What what matters is that you're an individual and the song is sort of somebody fighting back against being sort of labeled crazy and um and i think that's important i can kind of relate to that in terms of the things i write about um fighting back against the debunkers or the skeptics so it's sort of a, a good parallel and an analogy in that sense i guess cool cool i like it all right you were you were telling us about a shadow government before we went to break uh and i think you basically said that you don't think our air force our cia and so on and so forth really has any a lot more information than we have and and you, i believe you were explaining a shadow government is behind the disinformation please pick it up and and flesh that out for us well yeah sure uh, as i said just before the break i have I guess an alternative approach to many people within the UFO field and conspiracy fields where they often point the finger at, you know, the government or the Air Force or the CIA or the FBI and, you know, rant and shout that they're the bad guys hiding all the truth about UFOs. But I, I truly don't believe they are. And it, it's sort of a, an unusual concept to, for some people to get their minds around. But whereas everybody thinks you know, the Pentagon or the Air Force are hiding the facts about UFOs. I think today's governments, and I use the term government as like a catch-all term for all these different agencies, I really don't think they're the bad guys at all. I don't think they're hiding the big secrets. What I do believe is that there is what I would call like a shadow government or a shadow agency, which essentially operates and exists outside of official oversight, um which most people, even in government, know absolutely nothing about. It sort of, you know, goes under the radar, uh, gets its funding through alternative sort of black budget means. And so, in other words, when the Air Force says things like, look, we've gone looking for files on Roswell and we cannot find any, I think they're telling the truth. I think they're as baffled as we are. But the thing is that so many people assume that the Pentagon and so on should know. But if you can get your head around that angle, that, that idea that in reality it's a government 
within a government almost. And the, the, the elected government actually has no real awareness of what's going on. And I, the reason, one of the reasons I say that is if we go back to the 40s, 50s and 60s, we find a lot of evidence of government agencies investigating UFOs. After that time, the files really kind of stop in terms of quality and number. And people have said, well, that's because the government got tired of the subject, couldn't resolve it, and they dropped it. But what I think is that it was in that period when everything was sort of transferred out of government control and into sort of this private sector shadow control. And I think they're the people who are hiding the big secrets. But the problem is not only getting the information, it's actually finding them, you know, and understanding how they may have like this network of like a worldwide network of tentacles and strands and hidden within private corporations and things like that. I think, I think that's how the secrecy surrounding UFOs is hidden. That, you know, I mean, it really does uh, involve a major conspiracy, and, 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 and that would be one that involved many governments, um, mm-hmm. because this information is dead-ended from Russia, the United Kingdom, China, America. I mean, we all have the same kind, all, all of the countries have the same kind of of disinformation, the same kind of, of failure to be able to access uh you know, solid data um, and so forth. How do you, how do you imagine that might have been started? Well, I think because when you look at things with with um, sort of government angles in relation to UFOs, um, when we look at the Freedom of Information documents that surfaced in the forties, fifties, and sixties, we see clear evidence of official interest in the subject, but. The military may not have the expertise, for example, to autopsy and carefully study, you know, a recovered alien body. Let's say the military recover a UFO and four or five dead bodies at a crash site. Well, the military, you know, is in the the job of defending the country, not having the scientific and technological ability to autopsy alien bodies from another world. So I think the likelihood is that things like this, the advanced technology, the bodies, that would be channeled out to private industries. For example, corporations that deal with things like DNA research, um, viruses, um, biology, that kind of thing. These would be the people who would have to be brought on board to, to study the bodies. And as far as the wreckage is concerned, you would have people like physicists and metallurgists, people who could try and at least try and comprehend the technology and so over time more of this would go out of the hands of the government into these sort of fringe based um, powerful corporations researching equally fringe science and biology they would be the ideal people to hand this over to and I think over the years what's happened is that more and more of it has been handed over to them so they can try and figure it out to the point where they are probably the leading factor in all this and that's why I think attempts to try and get much out of quote the government doesn't work and I I really don't believe it's because the government is preventing us seeing it I think it's because as I said it's no longer with them it it is with these futuristic advanced corporations you know the big powered by big banks and old money and that sort of thing and they're the ones we need to focus on but I will admit the problem is is actually finding you know who it is that's 
that's got the alien bodies and where they're stored uh, and so on. So, I mean, in a sense, Nick, in, and correct me, but in a sense we're talking about, you know, something like a transnational corporation yes. um, or, or an, an organization like the alleged Illuminati, uh, yes. you know. And what you're saying is they are the ones that intentionally, because that's what it would take. I mean, in order for disinformation to enter the field, uh, such as you suggested in our first half hour, you know, you're bombarded with all these reports and many of them are fictitious. Um, someone has to orchestrate that, which implies a leadership and, and uh, you know, a sense of organization. So um, and is that what you're saying, that that we have something like uh, transnational and Illuminati that is actually orchestrating this now? Yeah, that's actually a very good analogy. I think that's exactly what it is, Eldon. I think rather than being an agency like the CIA or the KGB or the British Ministry of Defence, I really do think it's something that is like a combination of a transnational with something like the Illuminati, where you've got an ancient structure, in terms of the Illuminati, where you've got something like an ancient structure of very powerful people all interlinked around the world with massive amounts of money, power and influence over governments, but they're also interlinked with, with corporations that are at the cutting edge of science and technology. And when you put those together into one group, one shadow group, I think that sort of defines what this group actually is. And, you know, my view is that right now, while we're doing this show, there could be people in the Pentagon sitting there, you know, chatting over a coffee on a coffee break, saying, yeah, I wonder what really did happen at Roswell. And we assume, or so many people assume, that the Pentagon will be the people who know. But again, I think they don't know. We just assume they would. And, and it is this sort of transnational Illuminati worldwide thread, if you like, of, of old money, new money, uh, powerful people, people of influence. And they're all, it's like hiding in plain sight. It's just, you know, it's just kind of knowing gotcha. where they are. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Let's deal with some of the specific issues that are in your books, Nick. And and you brought up Roswell, so let's start there. There you know, there are many that insist this simply did not happen. And of course there are those who witnessed events that argue to the contrary. There are stories about witnesses um, you know, who lost their life in attempts to well, and, and I don't want to get tell us what happened at Roswell and and about the suspicious deaths that surround the the 1947 crash. Yeah, well, well, nobody really disputes that something strange happened, or something happened at Roswell. It depends on whose version of events you accept. Yeah, weather balloon, um, yeah. For example, you know, a lot of credible people have come forward, retired military people, to talk about seeing a crashed UFO, or at least wreckage, and these unusual little bodies. Um, the Air Force in 1994 claim that the wreckage was from something called a mogul balloon, which is a large balloon array for, from monitoring um, Soviet atomic bomb detonations. Then in 1997, the Air Force says, said that bodies were found at Roswell, but they said they were crash test dummies used in parachute experiments. So we have a lot of different scenarios. But for my mind, at least, having dug extensively into Roswell and actually visited the crash site itself, um, I'm convinced something very weird did happen and that bodies were recovered and a very unusual wreckage was uncovered as well. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And 
you know, a lot of books have been written about Roswell, but very few people, if any, have ever touched on the issue of the mysterious deaths associated with Roswell. Now, one of these involves a woman named Miriam Bush. Now, what we have to sort of backtrack a little bit to a man named Glenn Dennis. Now, Glenn Dennis, in 1947... Um, was, it was based in Roswell and lived in Roswell, and he was the mortuary assistant at the Ballard Funeral Home. And right around the time of the crash, he got this very weird call from the Roswell Army Air Force Base um, asking if he had any child-sized caskets, possibly four or five of them. And he found this quite puzzling. You know, at the time, Roswell was just a small, sleepy town, and here's the military asking him for five caskets. And so what he actually did, he went out to the base because he thought there must have been some accident and being a mortuary assistant, could he help? So mm -hmm. Glenn Dennis went out there and everything was sort of in disarray and people were running around, etc. Clearly something had happened. And he ran into a nurse friend of his who said, you know, you've got to get out of here. Something really big is going down. And she told him this story about seeing, personally seeing these unusual bodies, which had reportedly been found in the desert, damaged, uh, as if in some sort of accident. Nobody knew what they were or where they were from, just that they'd been found in the desert, out of the blue, so to speak. Now, Glenn Dennis did not talk about this from 1947 till 1989, when he was in his late 60s. And um, it was then that he finally decided to speak out, but he didn't want to reveal the name of the nurse who gave him the story, so he gave her a pseudonym. He wanted his story out, but he wanted to protect her from you know, anybody who might want to speak to her or track her down even. And so he obfuscated on the name. Now, over the years, various people have tried to find who the nurse might have been. And the best candidate, and, and the very likely candidate, was a woman named Miriam Bush. Now, Miriam Bush, she actually wasn't a nurse at the hospital as such. What she actually was, um, she was the executive secretary in the base hospital. So, in other words, she actually held a, a far more uh, higher-ranking position within the hospital than a nurse. Right. Now, Miriam Bush's family have since gone on the record as saying that right at the time of the crash that Miriam confiding in her family about what she'd seen at the base, what she described as these horrible little bodies and mangled bodies that had been brought in. Over the years, um, this affected her quite badly. She suffered badly from stress. Uh, she descended into complete alcoholism. And as the years progressed, she got more and more convinced that either someone was trying to find her and track her down or somebody within government was watching her. Now, what happened was that Glenn Dennis went public with his nurse story in um, the latter part of 1989. It was only a couple of months later that Miriam Bush was found dead. Um, this was when her paranoia really got to its height. And what she did, she checked into a, a motel room under her sister's name and address, and was actually found dead in the hotel room the next day with bruises on her arms and a polythene bag over her head. The official mm -hmm. verdict was suicide, but it doesn't sound <laughs> like suicide. And no. I have to say, and as I point out in the book, the timing of Glenn Dennis going public with the story and then Miriam Bush found dead actually kind of does sound like somebody got to her before she had chance to speak out publicly and confirm Glenn, De uh, Glenn Dennis's account. Yeah, that's... Uh... 
that that's a part of the story that I uh, was unfamiliar with until I read your book. Now, you know, let me ask you this, because, you know, I'm, I happen to live in Washington State, and we're circa 1947. Um, there were two military personnel uh, that were that died, allegedly recovering UFO debris at mm. Maori Island. Can you tell us about that? Yes, this is a story that actually predates by several days the famous uh, case of Kenneth Arnold, um, who really ushered in the UFO subject in 19, uh, June the 24th, 1947, uh, with his UFO sighting over uh, Mount Rainier, Washington State. But just three days before, there was an event at Maury Island, uh, which is also in Washington State. And it, the story surfaced with a man named Harold Dahl. And Harold Dahl... Uh, was on a boat in Maury Islands Harbour on the morning of June the 21st when he saw what would he described as like a, a squadron of flying objects in the sky. But they were kind of donut-shaped in the sense they were circular but with holes in the middle. And one of them seemed to be acting in a strange fashion. It was flying erratically and wobbling in the sky. And suddenly it exploded and showered all this strange debris wreckage down onto the harbour, on the water and the harbour. And so Harold Dahl collected some of this material and shared it with a man uh, named Fred Chrisman. Now, Fred Chrisman was a very unusual, intriguing and shadowy character who had a lot of ties to the intelligence community, uh, including the CIA and um, the Atomic Energy Commission. And Chrisman then shared it, or shared the story, um, with the media, and they reported on it. And, of course, it was no time at all before... The military heard about it and bearing in mind this was the very early days literally days of the modern era of the ufo subject the military um sent two personnel out to recover or to to take uh, charge of some of this wreckage and these were uh, lieutenant frank mercer brown and captain william lee davidson who both worked for army intelligence well they flew into uh, maury island on a boeing b-29 aircraft and they spoke to the various players in the story, like Chrisman, and um, they collected up a, a significant amount of this wreckage, which was due to be transferred to a place called Wright Field in Ohio, but which today is called Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, well, what happened was that uh, Brown and Davidson collected all this material together, this strange wreckage that Harold Dahl had found, some of which was described as being slag-like, and the other material was like a very lightweight metallic foil-type um, component, if you like. And they took to the skies from McCord Field in Washington State with the intent of flying onto Wright Field. Uh, it wasn't that long uh, when they were flying near Kelso, Washington, that their aircraft caught fire, burst into flames in the air, crashed to the ground, and um, both Mercer Brown and Lee Davidson were killed. And when the emergency crews got out there, you know, they were able to recover the wreckage and the bodies of the crew. But the the box of this strange wreckage could not be found anywhere. So we have two deaths associated with the case uh, on the part of the military. We also have the unusual and mysterious deaths of two media people in town who actually covered the story um, itself. One was a United Press man named Ted Morello and the other one was a guy named Paul Lance, who was a reporter for the Tacoma Times newspaper. And the story was that the bodies of both of them, um, 
who lay on a slab in the morgue for about 36 hours while the pathologist kind of hemmed and hawed over what it was that had killed them. So that's sort of like at least four deaths in the story in a very short period of time, all surrounding this recovered wreckage. And, and the material, this slag, was never recovered. It wasn't recovered, but what's interesting is that before the guys took to the skies, it was actually photographed, and these photographs have now um, surfaced. I managed to get copies of them through the Freedom of Information Act, and I reproduced in the book uh, an actual copy of one of the photographs that shows a piece of the unusual wreckage. Um, so in that sense, we know the material was recovered. We know it was due to be transferred for the military to inspect it. What we don't know is how the plane came to explode in midair. One theory is an interesting theory, the idea that the aliens themselves blew the aircraft out of the sky to prevent the military getting their hands on the wreckage and being able to analyze it. Well, now, you know, that's the question I was going to ask you next. Uh, let's go back to our transnational Illuminati um, organization. The, the deaths that you're talking about at Roswell um, here in Washington State, and, and we'll go on. There, there are others that we can discuss. Do you believe that that's, I mean, your own research, does it tell you that aliens are the people behind or people i don't know that that's correct but are, are the aliens behind these deaths or is it this uh this uh shadow government as as we as you refer to it well i, I mean that's a good question because there are some cases i talk about in the book where it seems clear that um that the the phenomenon itself the ufo phenomenon itself and the entities behind that were responsible for some of the deaths now, you know, some people say the entire UFO subject is positive. Um, I, I don't think we can be that black and white. It's like, you know, the human race. We're all capable of good and bad, but most of us hopefully know the difference between why it's wrong to rob a bank or murder someone. But we all have the ability in ourselves to do that. But, we, you know, we choose not to, which is a good thing. And I think it could be the same with extraterrestrials, that just like on Earth with us, there are multiple agendas and there are people who can be your best friend and there are people who can be your worst nightmare. And I think with the extraterrestrial angle, it's wrong to kind of pigeonhole it in all in a love and light angle. In the same way, it's wrong to say it's all negative because it clearly isn't. Um, so I think there could well be cases where the, the extraterrestrials themselves or... You know, some people think they're interdimensional. Whatever they are, right. I think there have been cases where they have sort of gone to the ultimate extreme of, of killing people. So the people. bottom line is it could be both, a mix of both. It could we be, have another yeah, it break could be both. coming and up. There are stories, of course, about sort of yeah. uneasy alliances. Yeah. I'm going to have you hold it again, Nick. We've got another break here. Right. We'll pick that up when we come back. If you'd like to know okay. more about Nick... Visit his website or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. We have a film featuring Nick for you during the break. You can watch it in our chat room. So if you're not already there, now is the time to join the fun. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Nick Redfern about his research in books, Close Encounters, and For Nobody's Eyes. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. They limit the friends page, so please join me on my fan page today. Now, we just played your second musical choice, Nick, Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. So, all right, what's the story on this one, sir? Why is this one so meaningful? It was recorded um, at a time when England was going through, or the UK, was going through a major recession and, you know, there was mass unemployment and um, people were just angry at the state of things and there was a lot of protesting and, you know, demands for for change and people were marching the streets and so on. And the song sort of captures that time when, when people were in England were basically saying, you know, we've had enough, we want a change in government, we want things being how they should be and um, you know there, there was sort of major civil disturbance and I think you know there's a song that sort of captures that element that people can relate to I think is important because music can, can music can tell a lot to people people listen to music and it can you know something like John Lennon's Imagine that kind of thing it's um People listen to it, and it's the same with that in England. It sort of captured a moment, and I think it demonstrates that, as in the UK, you know, people people should stand up and and question things. And if you don't like it, you should shout out and say so. And that's what the band did. You know, it was essentially um, a musical-driven rant against the state that the country was in. I like it. All right. All right. You believe aliens were responsible for the death of the National Guard Captain Thomas Mantell in 1948. So share with us that information. Well, yeah, sure. Well, the the Mantell case is an interesting one because uh, it's one that was investigated officially, but even to this day sort of remains shrouded in mystery and a lot of controversy. And when you understand, or when the listeners understand the nature of the story, that they'll see why. But Thomas Mantell um, was uh, with the Air National Guard, and on the afternoon of January the 7th, 1948, he, along um, with the squadron that he was flying with, were returning to a place called Godman Army Airfield in Kentucky, which is actually a portion of Fort Knox. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that Fort Knox isn't just the place where all the gold, the gold stored. It's actually a military installation as well, uh, of which Godman Army Airfield was a part. Now, the the backstory is that as the squadron was returning to the base, and for roughly an hour prior to that, people in the command tower were watching an unusual object in the sky 
high in the sky, but just sort of hovering there. It was sort of glistening vaguely, sort of oval, round-shaped. Nobody could figure out what it was. There were thoughts, could it have been a balloon? But the problem was it wasn't moving. You know, it wasn't carried by the wind like a balloon would be. It was just static. And so when this particular squadron um, returned, they were asked or ordered to see if they could figure out what this thing was. Could they close in on it? Well, it turned out that um, the there were four aircraft, four P-51 Mustang aircraft. The problem was one of them was very low on fuel, so he um, had to quickly land at Godman Field. So that took four planes then down to three. Now, it turned out that one of the pilots of the other three planes was slightly disoriented due to not having an oxygen mask. He didn't feel well. So he quickly asked for permission to break off and land, which he did. And because he didn't feel good, he felt dizzy and, and faint and lightheaded, the, uh, one of the other pilots was asked to accompany him down, sort of shadow him to the ground to make sure that everything was okay. And so that just left Thomas Mantell's aircraft, Captain Thomas Mantell. So we had four aircraft suddenly reduced to one. Now, Mantell himself didn't have uh, oxygen either, but he agreed to try and um, to manoeuvre in on the object to figure out what it was. He reached a point of about 15,000 feet, which is actually very high to go without oxygen. I mean, if, for example, if you walk in the mountains to five or 6,000 feet, you can actually feel it. But to be flying at 15,000 feet, you know, you've got to be sort of physically fit to, to cope with that. But at that height, um, Mantell said that he could see this object um, that seemed to be flying at roughly, it was actually now moving at about 50% of his speed, which put it at around about 180 miles an hour. So it wasn't actually moving fast, but it was moving. Uh, but he described it as being gigantic in size. Then he, he accelerated to where he got, actually got to about 25,000 feet and said he was going to uh, sort of zoom in, if you like, for a closer look, which is what he tried to do. And that was actually the last that was heard from him. The next thing that happened was that the object vanished from the view of the guys in the control tower and roughly 120 miles from, from Godman Field, uh, Mantell's Mustang continued to climb, then lost its climb and stalled and hurtled back to the earth and slammed into um, uh, uh, farmland. Now, a, a recovery crew went out and one of the people who's spoken about the uh, the recovery efforts was a man, man named Captain James Dusler. He was a <coughs> excuse me. He was a deputy commander at Godman Field at the time, and he said something very unusual: that when Mantell's body was recovered, although every one of his bro uh, bones was reportedly just shattered, there was actually no external damage to his body at all, which is very very strange. Or, you know, it's a bit of a grisly subject, but when mm -hmm. people are killed in plane crashes. You know, it's not just like, unfortunately, they, they bring the bodies out and they're all intact. They're not, you know. I mean, a lot of people don't realise one of the things that kills people in plane crashes is when the plane, the weight of the plane slams into the ground and it stops suddenly, your internal organs can literally move like two feet in your body. That's what kills people. It's the shock of the, the accident. But right. for Mantell not to have a single mark on the outside of his body was very, very strange and um, was something that certainly um, Dusler, um reported on and spoke about, you know, for decades. It, it, it sort of really stuck in his mind. And this has given rise to the idea that perhaps somehow um, 
the crash itself wasn't just a crash. Perhaps the object had been blasted out of the excuse me, the aircraft had been blasted out of the sky, or somehow it had been placed on the ground after the the aircraft was sort of bathed in some weapon in the sky. In other words, it was transferred to the ground rather than crashed, which may explain. Uh, but it's actually not a, a badly damaged aircraft. It was damaged, but not severely, and certainly with the external parts of Mantell's body not even damaged, that does kind of suggest that maybe there was something to the crash where it wasn't just a normal crash, so to speak. You know, your books cover a number of pilot uh, deaths that uh, are, are linked with UFO uh, information. But in in the sense of time, because there's so much that I want to ask you, I'm, I'm just going to jump a little bit around if it's all right with you. Nick. Sure. Um, you, we, for all intent and purposes, uh, I think, you know, when I say we, um, there is a, a mentality out there that looks at the John F. Kennedy controversy, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and with very mixed feelings. There's, there's so much that surrounds this, uh, and so many investigations that have been done. I found your take on it to reveal some information I'd never heard before. So I'd like you to flesh out the connections between uh, the assassination of Kennedy and the UFO controversy, if you will, please. Well, yeah, I mean, this is probably one of the most controversial of all aspects, if not the most controversial aspect of the entire UFO subject. The idea that President Kennedy was assassinated because he was on the verge of revealing the truth to the world about the UFO phenomenon. For some people, even in the UFO subject, it's sort of too much of a stretch to imagine that two of the biggest conspiracy theories ever, UFOs and the Kennedy assassination, could all actually be part of one bigger conspiracy. But that may well be the case. I mean, for example, we, we mentioned the Maury Island uh, crash earlier with the deaths of the two military personnel. Mm. I mentioned that Harold Dahl, the man who recovered the wreckage, handed it over to a guy with shadowy intelligence connections, a man named Fred Chrisman. Well, it turns out that Fred Chrisman popped up in the Kennedy assassination 16 years later. And um, uh, Jim Garrison, who was the district attorney of New Orleans, who was played by Kevin Costner in the JFK mm. movie, um, the, the district attorney, he actually himself, uh, Jim Garrison, came to believe that Fred Chrisman, who handled the Maury Island wreckage, um, was actually one of the, the gunmen at the Grassy Knoll. He actually believed that he was one of the people who put a bullet in Kennedy. Um, now, on top of that, there's another man named Guy Bannister. Guy Bannister was also portrayed in the JFK movie by Ed Asner. And um, in 1947, um, Guy Bannister was a, a special agent to the FBI, and he was heavily involved in a number of UFO investigations and also received a behind-closed-doors meeting and briefing with the military on the UFO subject. Well, it turns out that in 63, Chrisman and Bannister were associated with each other, and both of them knew Lee Harvey Oswald. So this has sort of given rise to the idea that there was a cabal of people interlinked in the UFO subject in 47 who knew the sort of deep and dark secrets and who were then brought on board when Kennedy, supposedly at least, was going to reveal the truth. Now... What's interesting is that although we obviously don't have proof that Kennedy was on the verge of coming clean about UFOs, there are some very interesting things 
surrounding the time frame of his death that do relate to UFOs and outer space activities. Now, one of them was the fact that on the day before his death, Kennedy was killed in Daly Plaza, Dallas, on November the 22nd, 1963. On November the 21st, 1963, Kennedy was already in Texas, and he visited Brooks Air Force Base. Uh, Brooks Air Force Base at the time had just set up, just created a new wing that was dedicated to what at the time was called space medicine. This was the early years of the space race. Nobody really knew what long-term exposure to low gravity or no gravity or cosmic rays, might, how they might affect people, astronauts, when you know we went into outer space for extended periods. So that was the work of this new wing at uh, Brooks Air Force Base. And Kennedy actually opened this. It was like a dedicated ceremony to opening the, the wing when he was in Texas. And Kennedy, interestingly enough, had a behind-closed-doors meeting with a man named Major General Theodore Bedwell. Theodore Bedwell actually held a major um, medical military position at Wright Field, as it was known at the time, in the summer of 1947. It just happens to turn out that the summer of 1947 at, at Wright Field is where the bodies from the Roswell crash were supposedly taken. And he would have been, Major General Bedwell, would have been one of the prime people to have had access to the bodies because of his medical position within the military at that base. And there are a lot of strands and themes like that, where, for example, uh, Kennedy wanted to open up outer space activity and research that the US was doing to the Russians. He wanted to share it. Um, and this was sort of seen as beyond the pale um, for whoever was sitting on all the UFO secrets. And the theory is that you know then the countdown was on to take him out of circulation because it was just... They just did not want anyone opening the doors. And, and again, that comes back to why I think there was like a shadow government, because if Kennedy was the president and he had to go looking for information and getting briefings, then clearly he wasn't in the know. That suggests to me why it isn't the government that's hiding this. It's something outside. And I think it's these outsiders rather than insiders that, that arranged you know, the, the, the circumstances that led to his death. Right. I found that whole story and all those connections to be um, tantalizing. I mean, beyond. Oh, there's, there's loads of them. I mean, I mean, somebody could write a book on that case alone because there are just so many strands. I'm surprised you haven't done that, but when you do, you. Well, you, you know, I've put the story out there. I mean, I, I, I really haven't got the, t <laughs> the time to do that because that's any book on the Kennedy assassination by default is going to be a major task but I, I would hope that somebody may pick up you know the impetus from that chapter and think wow i'm gonna dig into this and you know pursue it full time right, well, and do the ultimate book on it while we're digging into john f kennedy you know somebody says john f kennedy and you think marilyn monroe mm. that was probably the scandal of his lifetime that yeah. uh, didn't come until after his lifetime yeah uh Tell us about Marilyn Monroe and her connection to space. Well, yeah, this is a very fascinating story. Uh, that surfaced initially in 1995 from a man named Milo Spiriglio. Now, Milo Spiriglio is, was an author. He's dead now. But he wrote three nonfiction books on the death of Marilyn Monroe, all of which concluded that the circumstances around her death amounted to a conspiracy. He didn't buy the idea that it was suicide or accidental death, you know, just through being depressed and taking a few pills. He believed it was 
amounted to murder. Now, in 1995, after having written three books, like any author, like me, uh, whoever, people read your books and they contact you and share stories and information. Well, Spiriglio was given a copy of a document. Now, whereas all the documents that I use come officially and legally through the Freedom of Information Act, the one that was provided to Spiriglio was supposedly a leaked document from somebody on the inside who, according to the story, had access to classified CIA files. Well, the document that was given to Spiriglio was a wiretap summary of a conversation between two people that were friends of Marilyn Monroe. One was a well-known journalist named Dorothy Kilgallen, and the other was a man named Howard Rothberg. And all three were friends with each other. And supposedly, Dorothy Kilgallen's telephone was wiretapped by the CIA, and they recorded a conversation, which was then transcribed, in which Rothberg and Kilgallen talk about how Marilyn Monroe had supposedly told them that during the time of her affair with JFK, that he told her of a visit he made to a secret Air Force base, as a, that's how he describes it in the, um, the document, because that's how Kilgallen described it, where he was shown uh, the wreckage of a spacecraft and some dead bodies. And uh, the inference was that it could have been the Roswell event of 1947. And the, this sort of time-wise was when Marilyn Monroe, this is mid-'62, uh, the documents dated August 62, and we can we have been able to verify that the typewriter that was used, the typeface, does match the kind of typewriter that was used by the CIA at that time, and the crest and the heading is all correct as well. So in that sense, you know, it passes muster, so to speak. Um, but this, the, the particular time frame, August 62, was when Marilyn Monroe was very angry at JFK, at the way she was being treated, and he wouldn't answer her calls anymore. And this is where it gets to one particular reason as to why her fate might have been sealed. Now, although Marilyn Monroe has... She's very unfairly been portrayed as, like, a dumb blonde, the idea that, you know, she was this sort of scatterbrain. She wasn't. She was actually... That was sort of more the movie image. But she was a very well-read woman. Um, she's very interested in world politics. And in 1955, she actually applied for a visa to visit the Soviet Union because she wanted to see what it was really like. And this raised eyebrows with the FBI and the CIA, who both were prepared uh, documents on this plan, she, uh, this plan trip she wanted to make. Well, as well as, um, I say, being very well-read and interested in politics, when she was having her affair with Kennedy, she kept extensive journals that detailed everything that he told her. She, she was like a prestigious writer of journals and diaries over the years, but she had this one that supposedly contained all this information that was, became nicknamed as the Red Book, and it was so supposedly so explosive that it was just filled with, you know, the, the government's deepest and darkest secrets. Now, after um, Marilyn Monroe was found dead in uh, early August 1962, we know uh, from the testimony of a number of people who've since come forward that the Red Book and some of her other belongings were taken to the coroner's office. You know, they were bagged up and taken after her body was removed from, from her home. A number of people have said they saw the Red Book, but that it vanished under mysterious circumstances about two days after it was taken in there. Nobody really knows who took it, what happened to it. You know, was it essentially, did somebody come in and say, you know, under national security 
laws on confiscating this. That's probably what did happen, something along those lines. Uh, but reportedly, the story is that it contained everything that Kennedy told her about this spacecraft crash and um, the bodies. Now, what's interesting is that the document talks about how uh, Howard, uh, Howard Rothberg and Dorothy Kilgallen were talking, and the CIA was listening in about how Marilyn Monroe was supposedly going to blow everything wide open and tell the public. And the document is actually dated three days before her death. So that's kind of ominous, the idea that someone was listening in on the conversation, heard that she was going to blow the whistle, and then suddenly, you know, she's wiped out just 72 hours later. Yeah. And again, it begs uh, it begs the question more than it, uh, it. It further supports the connection between President Kennedy and the UFO. I, I found the yeah. whole thing just very insightful, and I, I've never encountered that anywhere else. All right, we have a couple of minutes before the break, and, um, you know, I want you to talk to us about L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology and Goff. But bear in mind, I may have to, I mean, I know this story is going to take more than a couple of minutes, but introduce us. You know, what has Scientology got to do with uh, UFOs and all of that, Nick? Um. Well, well, I mean, L. Ron Hubbard um, you know, was the founder of Scientology. Um, he was always prior to that. He was a science fiction author. He wrote a number of actually quite good uh, science fiction stories. Um, and his background, in many respects, is more interesting than the whole Scientology angle. Um, he was good friends in the 1940s, for a while at least, with a man named Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a brilliant rocket scientist, um, who was had a, con- a top secret contract with the U.S. military to design rockets? Um, but Parsons was a very alternative and almost unique character in the sense that um, he was a follower of, of the occultist Alistair Crowley, and Parsons actually ran um, Crowley's chapter in Pasadena, California, uh, at the same time that he was doing all this uh, rocket research um, for the military. And to give you an example of how Parsons crossed paths with the military and the world of the occult, before each rocket launch, he would try and invoke the Greek god Pan to ensure a successful flight. And the military kind of rolled their eyes and turned a blind eye to it because he was a great rocket scientist. But what happened was that um, Parsons and Hubbard became friends for a while, spent time together, and also um, engaged in a number of sort of rites and rituals, trying to conjure up so-called elemental entities, as uh, as Parsons called them. All so right, that's, 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 that's a great place to stop, because you've got everybody okay. teased up here now. <laughs> okay, a rocket scientist who's invoking Pan. All right. <laughs> We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to take your comments and questions, so do please stay tuned. Uh, and do get these books for Nobody's Eyes Only and Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The changes I've seen in my life are truly a blessing. InnerTalk has given me the tools to repair deep-seated beliefs that constantly worked against me. I find myself happier and more successful since I've used the InnerTalk programs. I encourage you to discover the power of your beliefs by visiting www.innertalk.com and selecting your title for change. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Nick Redfern about his research in books, Close Encounters and For Nobody's Eyes, two books, two great books. And I tell you, um, I could easily have um, 100, 150 questions to ask Nick on these two books, and we have been able to maybe cover so far a dozen or so of them. That's how jam-packed they are with the kind of information that you've been listening to in this last hour and a half. So if you're like me and you find this information interesting, intriguing, uh, and more, then you're definitely going to want to get copies of these books and enjoy them. We'll take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Now, Nick, we just played your third choice, Ace of Spades by Motorhead. What's the story on this one? Oh, well, that's actually much similar. I, I just, I love Motorhead. <laughs> but I, li- I like the fact that they play very fast and very loud and, you know, <laughs> very intense. Um, so I, there's not necessarily like a, a meaning behind the song as it, as it relates to me, other than it's like a, for me at least, it's like a feel-good song. Uh, but Motorhead have been going like 40 years and Lemmy the singer, I think he's almost 70 and uh, they're sort of like, they're like musical cockroaches. They're unable to, you know, they're unstoppable and unkillable. They just keep coming back and keep coming back, which is good, you know, and um, so they're one of my favorite bands, so that's why I chose. I love it. You know, I I, I don't know how you possibly relax uh, to have you. Well, you know, I, I... I'm one of these people who I sort of structure what I do very carefully. I generally work uh, Monday to Friday writing um, like seven till five. Uh, first hour or two is sort of blogging and responding to emails and Facebooking or Twittering and articles and so on. Um, then I, if I'm working on books I, or articles, I work, do the writing eight till five, Monday to Friday, and then I stop. So I have evenings free, I have weekends free, and I just have a normal life. I'm one of those people who enjoys switching off from one to the other, and and I can do it very easily, you know, where I swing away from the writing to just going to a soccer game or a a movies or whatever. You know, I'm able to have, like, a a totally separate thing, so to speak. I'm able to do that too, Nick, but I'll tell you what, I can't relax, just lay back and listen to heavy metal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's funny. I mean, for me, you know, it doesn't sort of affect me. I, I just like to, to listen to it, and I just sort of, you know, I don't feel um, nervous listening to anything like that. It's For me, it's relaxing music. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, listen, um, maybe I should ask you what you and Pan... <laughs> in common since you can relax to that but instead let's go back to the story of parsons and uh the connections hubbard uh and scientology all have to this yeah well as i said um in the 1940s l ron hubbard who later became famous through scientology was a noted science fiction author and and writer of, of, of short stories as well in the 40s 
became friends for a while at least um, with Jack Parsons. They later had a dispute over a girlfriend and, and that was the end of that. But uh, Parsons, I said, one of the most interesting characters. Um, he was linked with Jack, with, excuse me, with uh, Alistair Crowley, as I said before the break, to the extent that he actually ran the chapter of his, of his organisation out in Pasadena. Um, Parsons was also somebody heavily interested in UFOs and felt that, he personally felt that he was responsible in part at least for opening a portal in 47 that allowed the UFO phenomenon through, if you like, almost like a a dimensional gateway. Now, Hubbard in 1950 unveiled what was called Dianetics and in Hubbard's own uh, own words, this was the modern science of mental health and... um, it was essentially a, a way in which emotional problems, bodily ailments and so on could be eradicated and somebody's intelligence could be increased significantly. Now, in 1952, Dianetics was kind of uh, modified into a philosophy that he termed Scientology, as we know it today, which again is, you know, connected with science, health, way of living and so on. And... Um, as a lot of followers, but also very controversial for a lot of people as well. But um, Hubbard himself was a fascinating character. Just a few years ago, for example, the FBI declassified a file on, or actually files on Hubbard and Scientology, which give us a lot of insights and intrigue into the man's life. For example, one FBI file talks about how on February the 23rd, 1951, um, somebody around about two or three o'clock in the morning entered um, Hubbard's home and reportedly um, jammed a needle into his heart and possibly to create like a coronary thrombosis. That's what he actually says in the FBI file. That was what um, Hubbard suspected had happened. Uh, he said he had no sort of real recollection of what happened or how it happened. Everything was very blurry. Um, but... Um, the, the mere fact that it had happened and he was so concerned that the FBI were brought into it, it almost sounds like somebody was had attempted to assassinate him. And mm-hmm. I said, as bizarre as it sounds, that's actually contained in the FBI's now declassified files, which, um, which showed that the FBI took a, a deep interest in Scientology and its activities over the years, um, right up until the time of um, Hubbard's death in 1986. And, um, but you find this a lot through the, a lot of the FBI's uh, declassified files, which, they, which you can find at their website, The Vault. They took a lot of interest in various um, sort of fringe organizations, uh, religious groups, and you know, alternative um, organizations, and, and also um, and Scientology. And, and again, it's sort of a fascinating bit of Scientology history told through the official files that have surfaced, not just on um, Scientology and Hubbard, but also Parsons. Uh, Jack Parsons had an extensive FBI and military file that ran to hundreds of pages, and that's been declassified as well. So we've got a lot of good insight into the world of secrecy and, and how these people were, were closely watched as well. Now, Jack Parsons, you alluded to this, uh, directed uh, The Golden Dawn, or a chapter of The Golden Dawn. I thought I knew just about everything about Aleister Crowley, but I somehow missed this Parsons connection. Uh, Did Crowley have any other involvement? And can you flesh out with any more detail this whole notion that he opened a portal for interdimensional beings? Yeah, I mean, this 
this kind of take things takes things away from the strict nuts and bolts UFO angle that many UFO researchers believe in. But the fact is, when you look into the UFO subject, there are a lot of weird occult aspects to it as well. And Parsons was of the opinion that one of the best ways to see UFOs wasn't to sort of go up and look into the night sky, but to sort of enter into an altered state and in, essentially invoke them and manifest them. And that was his approach. He felt that rendering his mind into an altered state could open portals to other realms or dimensions. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now some researchers have taken the view that Parsons, by dabbling in this subject, literally did open a portal. That because his, his dabblings, if you like, started in 46, and it wasn't long after before the flying saucer wave began in 47. And Parsons personally felt he was responsible for opening like a paranormal gateway, not to another star system, but to sort of a coexisting dimension where these creatures were coming from. But they had to be sort of invoked um, to allow them to come through. Now, this, this is interesting because it actually ties in with something that Alistair Crowley himself was involved in um, years earlier when he uh, reportedly conjured something up that sounds eerily like one of today's so-called grey aliens, as they're known. Now... This takes us back to uh, March 1918, when Crowley was engaged in this long-standing extensive ritual called the Amalantra working, in which uh, involved the ingestion of both hashish and mescaline to enter an altered state of consciousness. And it was in this altered state that Crowley claimed to have met or seen or manifested this strange creature known as Lamb, L-A-M. And Crowley actually drew a picture of Lamb and if you if you do you know enter a search engine plus Alistair Crowley plus Lamb, you'll see his picture, and it's like this enigmatic, eerie looking, eerily looking creature with like a large bald head, penetrating eyes, tiny nose, uh, small mouth without lips, and these tiny shoulders. Other than the the colour of the eyes, it looks just like a so-called grey alien from today's alien abduction stories. But this was 1918, and this was. Crowley in an altered state, opening portals and doorways and allowing these things through rather than a nuts and bolts spacecraft angle. So, uh, you know, I think this whole idea that maybe they're not extraterrestrial after all, but they might be something even weirder, something that we can invoke that can enter our lives almost through, you know, commanding them to come through or allowing them or opening a portal which then cannot be closed, which is quite ominous as well. Um, Interesting. Know, that, that's all part of the story as well so we have this thread going from uh, Crowley 1918 through to Parsons in the early to mid 40s who then meets Hubbard who then sets up Scientology which itself actually has a strong alien theme running through it as well right it does and, uh, some of the, yeah well that's another story but before we leave yeah. the call this there's so much I still want to get to you uh, your book's you know, discuss government's involvement with occult and paranormal. One of the stories involves sorcerers, Satan, and CIA. Flesh that out for us. Well, yeah, this is a, a very unusual project that was created in the late 1960s by a man named Sidney Gottlieb, who did a lot of um, sort of 
fringe and groundbreaking, fringe-based and groundbreaking research for the CIA into the mysteries of the human mind, how the mind could be understood, manipulated, controlled, hypnotised and so on. And this also ties in time-wise when a lot of research has been done into remote viewing, sort of psychically spying on the Russians, you know, instead of sending out James Bond-type agents. The idea was to have people using their minds and, you know, in essence, send their soul to spy on the Kremlin and, and in, a, in like an out-of-body situation. And this sort of, uh, one of the impetuses behind this was that it gave the push for Operation Often to be created. Operation Often was probably one of the most controversial of all the alternative programs that were created in the sense that it was looking to use the world of the occult and weaponize it, as strange as that sounds. You know, I mean, I always tell people, you know, it's never really a good idea to dabble in the occult because often it can create things, what have become known as like psychic backlash, where you can open doors to negative entities that can get their grips into people, you know, and lives can be destroyed and controlled and manipulated. So I always say to people, if you're going to get into the occult, be, you know, be very wary because... You just don't know what you're going to open the door to. Um, but Operation Often, their idea was, well, if there are sort of negative entities out there, can we invoke them and control them? The, the idea was to sort of use the occult to try and invoke illness and death and bad luck in enemy leaders. In other words, you know, could you almost control and create bad luck or a curse? and then weaponize it and dispatch it, focus on, you know, the president of the Soviet Union or whatever, and cause like a black cloud, not literally, but a black cloud, you know, metaphorically, to descend on them that would actually kill them, you know. And it, this is very dicey area when you start trying to control the occult and weaponize it. But that, that was the goal of Operation Often, a very, very alternative and almost like menacing program, if you like. Yeah, an incredible story too. Listen, I, I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, for all intent and purposes, uh, being a little selfish here and uh, monopolizing your time. We have some questions, and I'm gonna yeah, sure. jump over to the chat room and pull a question out of there. Uh, question from the chat room: Have you investigated the spate of uh, bankers' deaths? Um, you know, I actually haven't. The ma there's only one reason why I haven't. That's that's sort of time-wise, time really. Um, one of the things I've sort of... I decided to focus on a long time ago was sort of paranormal conspiracies like UFOs and cryptozoology, which is my other subject, like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but sort of political conspiracies, I really don't get involved with those because I think they're so intricate that the response... The responsible way to study those sort of things and write about them requires a lot of research and a lot of time. And when I'm focusing on all the other stuff, I just don't have the time. So I've followed the story of all these suspicious and sort of sudden deaths in the banking industry. But I, I haven't done any research because I feel there are people who focus on that issue, those kind of issues alone, who can do a far better job than I can by juggling UFOs and Bigfoot and then trying to do all that as well. So that's the only reason I haven't. It's just I feel it's important that people who do look into this are the ones who've actually got the time to do it. 
Yeah, well, you know, when you talk about shadow governments and, uh, you know, clandestine operations, you think about banking, you think about the people behind the banking, yeah. you yeah. go back to the, well, there might know, be a tie in there with all Rockefeller this. family and, you know, all of that kind of thing seems to fit in. But you know what I found since that question arises out of our chat room? I follow it also. It's one of those stories that I would love to have the time to just go get my teeth into. Uh, but I found it very interesting that, you know, Wall Street on Parade reported, um, I think it was in April, maybe May, you should be able to Google it, that um, the suspicious deaths of the bankers were classified as trade secrets by a federal regulator. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if that yeah, doesn't raise an eyebrow or two, I don't know yeah. what would. What's well, almost like a ironically weirdly appropriate statement as well but <laughs> yeah. um but there's no doubt i mean these what is weird i mean one of the things i talk about in um close encounters of the fatal kind there have been periods where scientists for example uh some who are working on uh like for example president reagan's star wars program the strategic defense initiative of the 1980s i talk mm-hmm. about in the book how a spate of scientist deaths for a company in the UK called Marconi all occurred. No less than 31 deaths in Marconi from 1984, excuse me, 1982 to 1991. Many working on the Star Wars program, which some people have suggested was actually designed to counter a hostile attack by aliens. Um, and some of those deaths were really weird. Um, numerous car accidents, hangings, um, people jumping out of windows, off bridges, um, many actually killing themselves, carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, with a hose pipe through the car window. Um, and these were people who were just, they didn't seem, none of them seemed to display any prior, you know, sense of stress or depression. And the theory is that somebody, or possibly even the extraterrestrial entities themselves, sort of mind-controlled them to kill themselves to prevent them working on the, the SDI program. MK Ultra kind of deal. Listen, yeah, exactly. You know, we, something along the lines of MK Ultra, like a subliminal yeah. hypnosis where something triggers them, and in, almost like a, in a zombie state, they get up and get in the car, they get on the highway, and they hit eighty miles an hour, and they swerve off the road and kill themselves. You know, but they're not doing it under their own volition, so to speak. Well, you say that, and of course, I think immediately of a a very famous reporter whose Mercedes ran into a tree and the engine went in the opposite direction that it should have gone. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I'm sure he wasn't mind-controlled, but I'm not so sure the car wasn't remote-controlled. Well, there's a lot of stories like that. And, I mean, I, I think when you see a pattern developing, that's one of the things I always tell people. When you're looking into these mysterious murders, don't just look at each case individually figure out if there's a pattern to the deaths. You know, are there similarities in terms of what the person was doing, the position they held, who they'd spoken to prior to, you know, the death, and things like this, and put together the, the strands and see where they lead. Well, talk about similarities. Look at the similarities that you just described to Star Wars versus the similarities that we have with our uh, our bankers. Yeah. Okay. Well, also, in, yeah. Go ahead, I mean, please. in the early 2000s, yeah, go on, sorry. No, please, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I was just going to say, well, in the early 2000s, from about 2001 to 2005, there was a, an even bigger spate of deaths of people in the field of microbiology, whose job is the study of exotic viruses, uh, mutated viruses, created viruses. 
many who were doing classified work for government agencies all around the world, and they died in almost eerily similar parallels to the Marconi scientists. Car accidents, jumping off bridges, carbon monoxide poisoning, car accidents, you know, swerving off the highway, um, electrocution. So many that, I mean, official investigations were actually opened into these deaths in the same way they were into the Marconi scientists' deaths. And, um, and again, you know, we see the pattern where it seems like somebody or something has the ability to essentially sort of take control of somebody's mind and, and just cause them to, to take their, themselves out. You know, not, it's not like it's a stage suicide. It's like somebody has the power to cause them to commit suicide themselves. Right, right. Okay, Nick, we have only got a little over a minute now. Uh, I want you to tell everybody, if you will, how they can reach out, uh, learn more about you, learn about your work, uh, email you if you you answer your emails. Uh, oh, and I obtain always, your books. Yeah, I always contact people. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I always say. If people want to contact me, whether to share information or you know provide a story or a lead, or if they've got questions, uh, I'm always happy to chat with people. I'm not one of these authors that you know so don't talk to me or whatever. No, I'm always happy to interact with people because I feel we're all. We're all part of the quest for the answers, and that includes, you know, people who contact me and buy the books. It's, it's the respectful thing to do to respond. Um, people can reach me at my blog, which is World of Whatever, and the address is um, Nick Redfern Fortean, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, Nick Redfern Fortean dot blogspot dot com, or just type Nick Redfern into Facebook. Uh, there's, I think, there's seven or eight Nick. Redford, there might be a few more, but uh, you'll see me on there, and uh, people can message me that way, and again, I'm always pleased to chat and um, answer questions people might have, and so on. Okay, Nick, I really appreciate you taking the time for the show today, and I mean it sincerely. I love your books. I wish we, uh, you know, we could uh, have this conversation for another couple of hours at least on just the two books we're talking about today. We're going to be having you back, and we'll be talking to you about uh, some of, more of your work in the future. All right. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show, Eldon. Thank you, Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.